At Freedom HealthWorks, we're focused on putting medical professionals back in control of their practices. Utilizing a structured, tailored approach to business, startup, and operations, it could make sense for you to work with our professional team to avoid expensive pitfalls and, more importantly, expedite your journey to success. As we all know, time is money. If you're involved in the practice of medicine and desire to practice free of headaches and constraints, reach out for a no-obligation consultative conversation. Call us today at 317-804-1203 or visit freedomhealthworks.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Healthcare Americana. This is a podcast for 99% of the people who get care in America. We're not clinicians or policymakers. We're patients and caregivers, executives and advocates who are fed up with the status quo. We have a desire to change it. This podcast brings listeners backstage at innovative organizations with innovative individuals across America. They're putting patients first by delivering exceptional care to anyone and everyone. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Habig, CEO and co-founder of Freedom HealthWorks. And anybody who's familiar with Freedom HealthWorks and, and what we do, creating Freedom Doc across the country, is that we are very, very big on what we call the patient experience. Too often, Americans as patients who get sick or have loved ones who are sick and have to take care of them, expect a really bad or a negative experience when they have to interact with nurses, doctors, and the health system at large, throw in insurance companies, and then people get very, very complex, very complicated care. And then everything that falls out from it, from billing to engagement and anybody who's experienced that totally knows exactly what I mean there. So the big question of, around what we do a lot is, why do people expect a negative experience and how do we fix it? Joining me today is John Wendling, CEO of Parkland Community Health Plan and somebody who spent a lot of his career in that patient experience field and transforming it for the better. John, welcome to Healthcare Americana. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me today. We're extremely excited to, uh, to be with you. Well, I think I uh, teed that up for you pretty well that why do people expect a negative experience? And we, we see this for people delaying care or people just not seeking care and all the negatives that go through that are very well documented, leading to very minor things becoming very major things, leading to even more complications, even leading to death. So talk to us a little bit about what a patient experience really means to you and your organization and how we improve upon that and what you've been doing. Right. So I want to start off by, I like to talk about history, evolution, and legacy. And so uh, you look at our parent organization, Parkland Hospital, who's been serving the Dallas community since 1894. For those history buffs out there, that was during the Grover Cleveland administration. Uh, it was actually the first year that uh, Coca-Cola bottled its product and Hershey incorporated itself. It was entered into the U.S. history books in 1964 as the treating hospital for JFK. Today, that hospital is the busiest burns and trauma center in the U.S., uh, and that hospital delivers two kindergarten classes a day. Very well respected in the community, very well respected across the state of Texas, but very well respected nationally. As a health plan, we were incorporated in 1997 to serve the Medicaid population uh, within the Dallas service delivery area. We received our first member in 1999 and now are in our 23rd year. To kind of set this up, going to kind of give you a reflection of what I had the opportunity to walk into. So about a $740 million company being served by 15 people within the organization. Mm -hmm. And so everything that defines a managed care organization was being uh, run by third-party entities. 
And these delegated entities over the 20 years had been serving every role, every function of a, of a health plan. On my arrival in January 2019, um, I like to talk about getting us from the Flintstones to the Jetson era and uh, growing up. And so that journey began. And uh, over the course of the next 14 months, with the assistance of um, a key external strategic partner, we drafted an RFP, uh, went out to six national core platform systems uh, that a managed care uh, operates off of and uh, kicked off our system implementation of March of 2021. I'm sorry, of 2020. At that time, we were approximately 18 FTEs. That also coincided with us going virtual. And so over the course of the next 12 months, we went through a full system implementation. We went live with our system in 2021 to better serve our members. And over the course of the last two years, we have grown 90% in a virtual environment. And so 90% of our workforce has been hired in a virtual environment. The reasons why we went through these steps was to ensure a better member experience. So for us, it's, it's the member, but the patient for the provider community. And we are one year into this journey to better serve our community. You know, I think historically, a lot of the, the challenges that the healthcare industry has faced, uh, when you talk about the patient experience, the member experience, you know, we have operated in individual silos. So we've had the provider entity, we've had the managed care entity, and then we've had the consumer, the patient or the member. You know, having spent the majority of my years actually on the hospital delivery side, I had that perspective going into the managed care side about 15 years ago. And one of the things that I identified, and it actually, it was a ball that went off. Um, it was from a gentleman by the name of Dr. Don Berwick, who was the founder of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, who formed what is called the uh, triple aim. And that triple aim goes to address the experience of the consumer, the health outcomes of that population, and controlling per capita cost. Part of what was trying to be accomplished with that is, so if you take in three interlocking circles where you have the provider, you have the managed care organization, you have the consumer, it's not working in isolation, but working collaboratively together. Listen, the provider needs the consumer. I mean, if nobody was sick, nobody needed care, we wouldn't need providers. The provider also needs the managed care organization so that when they provide services to an individual, they can be reimbursed they can be compensated for the care that they deliver. And the managed care organization, the same way. We are nothing without the member. And we need a provider network that can serve and provide care to our members. And likewise for the consumer who needs a provider to, re to receive the care and a managed care organization. So, John, with the triple aims kind of in healthcare there, there's a lot of different parties in there. Coming from our standpoint, you know, from a direct care standpoint, we believe interactions between a single medical provider or physician and a patient. And, you know, that's kind of it. We're purist in this sense, but understanding that, you know, there's a lot of situations out there and historically that's not how healthcare has been delivered there. So within what you were just describing, as far as the triple aim goes, how has that contributed to what you've seen as a failure in patient experience? And then I think that leaves kind of a springboard for you to say like, this is what it was, and this is now what it is. And this is how we've improved upon it. Curious about that. Well, you talk, so let's talk about evolution. You know, historically, 
healthcare has been very transactional. So mm-hmm. uh, consumer yeah, very receives, episodic in care, right? I, I would absolutely. say I would agree with you there. Absolutely. So a consumer receives care, and then a transaction occurs where the provider that provided that care is now compensated for that. I'm going to take us back to 1999 uh, when I joined a 32 acute care hospital healthcare delivery system uh, in the Midwest, uh, Catholic Healthcare Partners, today Bond Secure Mercy Health. And I was part of a leadership team running about 650 employed physicians across three different markets. And we started looking at our physicians more than just a transactional component, but looking at and you talk about episodic care. So we were looking at our physicians based on an episode, an entire episode for that consumer, for that patient. And then sitting down with the managed care organizations to negotiate, we call it many things now, value-based reimbursement, alternative payment models. And it now has accountability extending out beyond just um, a transaction. And now it's providing a better level of care for a better experience. And being compensated based on those outcomes. And there are several indicators that you can look at. You can look at hospital readmissions. You can look at ED utilization. You can look at the health of that individual and compensating for that. You know, it's interesting. We've been talking about this since the 90s. And here we are in the 2020s, and we're still having the same conversations. Now, I think we've made a lot of progress in getting to the whole person care model, Uh, But I think we still have some work to go. You know, you look at the barriers between providers and the managed care organizations in the 90s and the early 2000s. There's been positive movement. I'll be quite honest with you. From my perspective, I've seen more positive movement in breaking down the silos and starting to work together as we kicked off this pandemic. Mm -hmm. We've had change in care delivery. We have set up alternative payment models of care, uh, whether it be in a virtual environment or for other settings. You know, one of the stats I like to give is early in the pandemic, late April, we had a meeting across the state of Texas with the Texas Medical Association. Going into January of 2020, 8.9% of all physician practices had some kind of a telehealth, telemedicine solution. By late April, that had jumped over 87%. And most of that evolution took place between early March and mid-April. Right. And now we're right. delivering care in a much different model. And we're setting up quality incentives within the provider community to address things like preterm birth, infant mortality, where we're incentivizing providers providing prenatal care in a virtual environment, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, not really been done um, across, a lot across the U.S. We're not by far not the first. But, you know, looking at um, different alternatives, things like hospital at home. So where an individual may require three, four hours of inpatient care, we are now able to do that with nurse practitioners and through telemonitoring and other solutions to allow that individual to stay within the home. Sure. We're talking to John Wendling, CEO of um, Parkland Community Health Plan. Now, John, the leaps and bounds, I, I totally agree with you that we saw in the pandemic are you know, astonishing, but counterpoint is that technology has been around for 20 to 30 years. What the hell took so long for hospitals and healthcare to adopt it? Took a pandemic. And I know that's, that sounds very no, simple. I, I totally agree with you, but I'm like, you yeah. know, why weren't we doing this in the 90s? It's funny. I had this conversation a few weeks ago 
And I wrote this in my thesis in the early, early to mid-90s um, around telehealth, alternative payment models, better collaboration. Uh, we talk about the payer and the provider. And I was on the provider side at that time. Uh, you know, my introduction to the payer community was on the provider side negotiating. I don't know. I, I, I wish I had the answer. You know, I had this conversation. Well, I had this conversation with Dr. Don Borwick actually a couple of weeks ago in San Diego. Uh, we had dinner together. And um, he was intrigued that the health plan. So our, our, our platform is based on the IHI triple aim, which was designed actually for the provider space. That was a lot of its energy. So he, he wanted my perspective of why us on the payer side uh, were laying that down as our platform for our culture, our vision, our mission, our values. And from my perspective, once again, it's breaking down those silos we're trying to accomplish the same thing, just coming at it from another perspective on the other side of the fence. You know, from one perspective, it's been frustrating for the United States, for the consumers, for the providers, for the payers. And I, I wish I had a better answer. You know, Dr. Berwick and I did spend a little bit of time talking about that. And, yeah, and, uh, and in, in my mind, you know, I don't want to lead the witness by any means, but I think the easy answer is in the 90s, health plans couldn't pay for virtual visits. Everything had to be in person. And we saw that up until 2020, right? Right. There was no code uh, to be able to do this. And I always joke with physicians that we work with who no longer work with insurance. I said, hey, did you ever run across an ICD code that you could bill for reimbursement that was actually healing somebody? And they laugh and they say, well, no, if somebody's no longer diabetic, I don't really get paid by them anymore. So that's where I'm coming from. That's our world. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't want to, you know, put you on the spot and hit you with it, but it's just, that is something that it just kind of, kind of stuck in my mind that whenever we build a practice, it's inherent that virtual care is a supplement, not a replacement, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we have this pandemic and, and people are scrambling and, and, and there's a lot of health systems out there that pat themselves on the back, say, wow, look at this innovative virtual care that we're able to do. And like, you were Skyping internationally three decades ago. Right. <laughs> this isn't something that's like, this world thing, but it, we, the currency wasn't there, right? We were paying with the wrong currency. And so there was no incentive to provide virtual care. And that's my opinion. I'll let you react. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. You know, I think as I've gone throughout my career, both personally and professionally, and personally, I, I don't necessarily mean family, friends, but we are a very reactionary society. That's my perspective. We enact laws based on an outcome, not forward thinking. It's one of the things that Dr. Berwick talks about as well. You know, when he talks about, now listen, I'm not promoting that we change our entire system. We change our entire legislation based on other countries. But I think there are some valuable things we can learn from those from around the world. We're a powerhouse as far as a nation goes. We should not be falling as low as we are in health outcomes. For all of us, it took a catastrophic event to help us reshape the landscape that we're going into. And, you know, I'm not trying to make comparisons and minimize the impact for one or the other, but, you know, look at change that has taken place because of 9 11. 9 11, those types of things should never happen. And trying to become more proactive in the whole patient centered care. And the health of a population is critical. I mean, because it's not just the physical, it's the behavioral, it's, it's those social factors, 
or as we refer to the social determinants of health. And until we can impact all those and connect all those dots and really integrate, like I said earlier, the provider, the consumer, the, the payer, we're going to have challenges. And so yeah, I think yeah. there's been pro- progress made, but it took 30 years of talking about it before we could get there. <laughs> well, there wasn't any money in it, right? Um, right. Yeah, something you said about there is, you know, the failures of government, whatever government's involved, it's always going to be reactionary. And guess which industry the government has the heaviest hand involved in? Healthcare. Yes. There we go. Yes. Second yes. one being highest education. What are the two right. industries that are 20, 30 years behind the cutting edge of everything else? Right. Wow. I was just going to say, you know, when you look at state budgets, the two biggest drivers and the two biggest budgets for an overall state budget are typically education and healthcare. Same and with private companies too. Yes, I would absolutely. No, absolutely. Out there too. Right. And, and they're the it's, most complex systems, right? And so it's like, I don't want to put my tinfoil hat on out there, but you know, you hear whisperings that, hey, the more complex it is, the harder it is to unwind and the more money you can make from it. Once again, we're talking to John Wendling, CEO of Parkland Community Health Plan down in Dallas. I wanted to go into, you know, you mentioned health outcomes and, you know, a while ago you talked about value-based care. There's all kinds of buzzwords in healthcare that mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You, you even mentioned that, but I want to pick your brain on how important, how big of an involvement patient decisions, individual patient decisions and lifestyle plays into outcomes, value-based care, because the simple part of it is if I'm a physician and I get paid based on if this person gets back in the hospital, I'm sitting here saying, well, I told them to stop smoking. I told them to stop eating 150 M&Ms every hour and they refuse to do it. Why am I being penalized for that? I think that's always the, the lever on the other side saying, well, there is a lot of individual responsibility that has to happen for a society to actually improve their overall health. You're right. The consumer plays a critical role in the entire um, experience. And it's through education, through communication. And I was having a conversation actually yesterday with an individual regarding controllables, how much you can control, and what are the, what are the contributions you can make? Listen, we're not here to solve world hunger. Uh, maybe over time, uh, but it's not going to come... Uh, in short order, you know. So yes, you can, you can speak to uh, individuals in changing um, changing patterns to change your overall health outcome. One of the areas we can start is in some of our more depressed areas across the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, we have things called food deserts, um, and so the definition of a food desert is you know a three and a half to four mile radius from a person's residence to fresh fruit vegetables, produce, meats, uh, which you'll find quite often in these areas. You'll have several fast food restaurants, we'll leave it um, at that. You'll have a lot of liquor stores, instant lottos, a lack of banking institutions. And so, for example, in the Dallas market, we have three zip codes, 215, 216, and 217, that are defined food deserts. In these areas, we have a higher propensity for childhood obesity, diabetes, heart disease, uh, higher incarceration rates. Men live 19 years less in those zip codes than in other areas of the Dallas uh, Metroplex, for example. And similar stories and statistics are available across the U.S. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we're doing, so start taking a bite. And I know I kind of went in a little bit different direction than you let in with the question, 
but this is a starting point. And so there is an organization called Bonton Farms, and it's sitting in one of these food deserts where they actually grow crops. They have livestock. The intent of Bonton Farms is not necessarily to feed an entire community, but to teach working, you know, teaching skills to individuals that can then teach their children and then pass on for future generations. Mm -hmm. One of the things that the founder of this organization is doing is working with seven banking institutions. For anyone who does receive a paycheck within these areas, they have to go to the corner liquor store, for example, to cash their check, who takes automatically 10% of that earning. And so we have set up a whiteboarding strategy session with Bonton Farms to work through solutions to be a part of that um, solution, whether it be uh, the design of a new health center that they're putting in place in partnership with our parent organization, Parkland Hospital, to be able to treat individuals, to provide health education on proper nutrition and, and then providing support so that they can then receive proper nutrition. Mm-hmm. We're working with Albertson's Food, for example, National Corporation, Uh, Locally here, one of their stores is what's called Tom Thumb, and we are developing a mobile grocery store where we will be taking grocery stores into the community at reasonable prices so that individuals can basically walk out their door, walk down to the end of the street to get proper nutrition. There are a lot of opportunities like that that we can take advantage of to start changing that landscape. Listen, someone who lives in one of these areas that doesn't start at the age of 20 or 30. That has started at birth. And so the beginnings of you know, obesity, diabetes, leading to heart failure mm-hmm. is starting very young. And so we need to get on the front end of this as much as possible to help our future generations. And so one of the things I like to say about a community health plan, sorry if this sounds a little promotional, um, you know, listen, I, I learned managed care from a couple of some of the, I will just say some of the larger national publicly traded managed care organizations, sound business models. Um, you know, they have, they have responsibilities to Wall Street. They have their shareholders. For a community health plan uh, that has been in this community since 1894, we have our own Wall Street. Those are the streets that we live on. Um, our shareholders are those that we share a community with. Mm-hmm. And so our obligation is to get ourselves more ingrained within our community to start shaping and changing practices, behaviors for our future generations. If you were a politician, John, I think you would have said that we care about Main Street, not Wall Street, right? That's always the debate, Wall Street versus Main Street. You're right. And, and I, I completely agree with you. And I love the, the fact, you know, one of the things we always talk about, because we're big on price transparency, is relocalizing healthcare. Too many times, you know, the smartest, most accomplished people in our communities who choose a life of servitude to other people as physicians and, and nurses and providers, they're commoditized. Mm-hmm. And so too many times we say, look, the person in the white coat's the same, whether you're an NP, a DO, uh, an MD, a PA, they're kind of like saying, yeah, we, we'll, we'll kind of interchange them. And I think that really puts the patient at a disadvantage in that regard. So I love the fact that you're relocalizing your health plan. And if that works for people, great. Just like we love when physicians get into the community and actually become a pillar of the community and get involved and you know, those, those things around them. And, and I would say you just drew a lot of parallels in an urban market, but there's a lot of socioeconomic similarities between rural America too, and might not have the food deserts, but goodness gracious, there's a healthcare desert in rural areas as well. And 
curious from your standpoint, you know, kind of as our episode comes real close here, working with Medicaid patients, which historically, if you if you say, um, you know, hey, doctor, would you rather have a commercial paying patient or a Medicaid patient? They're going to say, I'm going to take the commercial paying patient because the Medicaid patient's not going to listen to what I say. Different right. lifestyles, kind of like you said there. So is it all education when it comes to Medicaid plans? I mean, there's in my mind, there are so many barriers to overcome from the health plan standpoint that not only are these people at a, a disadvantage from what they think is normal versus mm-hmm. what we believe is normal or somebody not on a Medicaid plan and, 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 you know, kind of depressed areas, like you said, where else do you go beyond an education standpoint into showing them that there is a better way to do things, I guess, would be a fair way to ask. Right. So one of the things that we need to address is access to care. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I'm going to tell you from someone who's been in the healthcare industry for over 30 years, you know, making an appointment and, and going to my PCP, following up uh, for bl- blood work, for example, mm-hmm. pretty easy transactional. Now you throw in complications and other specialists and it can become, in, depending on um, if there's any comorbidities tied into that as well, it can become very challenging for those within the industry. And now you throw in, a, whether it be a rural or urban-based area, or even in the suburbs, maybe with not as many of the support systems or support opportunities, whether it be technology, economics, whatever, it is incumbent for the payer, but also for the provider to help the consumer navigate the healthcare delivery system. You know, I will tell you for a, a Medicaid population, that can be challenging. It can be challenging for the most educated. So mm-hmm. um, it is incumbent on all of us to work together. To talk about rural, I'm going to give you an example. So how do you get to Dallas to you know, take an organization from where we were to where we are and where we're going? I had to make a little stop in Lincoln, Nebraska to do a financial turnaround for a MCO, managed care organization, I'm sorry. and. Um, I was introduced with the state of Nebraska, along with the University of Nebraska, teledentistry. Mm. And so, yeah, that's what I said, too. And so, you know, you look at, uh, and I mean, it's in Texas, it's in Nebraska, it's in other parts of the U.S., where, you know, you may have the closest dentist three and a half hours away. And so to go do a routine checkup, cleaning, x-ray, to then identify that you have additional issues that we're going to need you to come back for can make it challenging for the consumer. And so this teledentistry model is is pretty simple. Uh, As long as you have a a dental hygienist, for example, in a rural area that can have a telesolution like in a metropolitan area. Now, there's not a lot in Lincoln, Nebraska, but Lincoln and Omaha, you can can have that transmission. Uh, Listen, dental hygienist does the cleaning. They're the ones that perform the x-ray. The dentist comes in at the end of the service, can read the radiology images telephonically or uh, virtually. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank okay. you. <laughs> and then can actually have the individual, the dental hygienist, you know, with the mirror and can uh, check the teeth and make a determinant at that time, whether it is necessary for that individual to make the three and a half hour trip, mm-hmm. one trip versus two. It's an access and convenience factor, I think. And to me, that just resonates as far as, wow, we're actually putting the patient, like you said, you know, before patient centric, we're going to see what works for your schedule, not just, well, I got these spots available in the next six months. If you don't take it now, I can't see you in three years. And I exaggerate, but I mean, that's so many people's interaction with healthcare right now. And then 
not to even get started on on world, there's a lot of misnomers about, oh, well, I have to have insurance so I can go see a doctor or a dentist. And you're like, well, well, wait a minute, you don't. There are an absolute role for you know insurance to play and on the bigger stuff, but you know, there's just a lot of misconceptions that I know you're fighting every single day, I'm sure, that we see in the broader industry as well. So, John, as our time comes to an end here, I always love asking this question. You know, from your perspective, running the health plan side of it, what does that perfect healthcare system look like to you? You got your magic wand and you say, all right, fast forward. And I've been able to do everything I wanted to do. We're in the future. Everything's humming along. What kind of system is that? What does that look like? I love this question, by the way. So one of my commitments coming in the door was to ensure we serve more of the community. You know, once again, we've been serving this community since 1894. And so we've been serving the Medicaid population now going on 23 years. Uh, 2024, we will have an ACA plan through the exchange. You look at our parent organization, Parkland Hospital, it is a county district, it's a safety net hospital. It serves a higher percentage of uninsured and underserved. And so as individuals come in with no insurance, we will offer them a benefit plan. Bronze plan will pay 100% of the premium. We'll offer a few additional benefits for a nominal premium for the silver plan. We are now serving a little bit more of the community. We will then move into the self-employed commercial space. Parent organization has 15,000 employees. Here's the message, though. We're now serving more of the community. From my perspective, whether you have a commercial plan, a Medicare plan, a Medicaid plan, we all should have access and right to receive healthcare services. And so the more individuals that we can place in their wallet a Parkland Community Health Plan insurance card, to me, that is the perfect state. Part of our charge is to grow the business. Um, so, you know, uh, the story goes by 2526, we should turn this $740 million company into about a $1.4 to $1.5 billion operation. As we approach the end of the 20s, we should exceed $2 billion in operating revenue. But we'll be serving more of the community. Here's the legacy it's not achieving $2 billion. It's being able to serve a community for future generations. The story goes, once we achieve $2 billion in operating revenue, I'm going to hang out my bow tie and three-piece suit, and I'm going off to a beach selling tie-dye t-shirts and bucket hats. But we are serving more of a community than we started with in 2019. It's a fantastic goal. And are you guys nonprofit? Yeah. We are. And I said this is gonna be the last question, but you, you just just picked my brain there. You know, there's kind of a fight against you know nonprofits and saying tax exempt status versus serving the community. But I know um, just based you know on the research that I've done that you, know, you guys are really going out there and, and trying to enable that access. We talked about nutrition education, so you know I think you're 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 on the good fight there. So John Wendling, CEO, Parkland Community Health Plan. Thanks so much for joining us here on Healthcare Americana. It has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Have a great day. That's going to do it for this episode of Healthcare Americana. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out online at healthcareamericana.com to catch previous episodes. Subscribe to our mailing list. Check out our awesome swag and awesome gear in the online store. Once again, I am your host, Christopher Havig. Thanks for listening. Check out healthcareamericana.com to hear all our episodes, visit the shop, and learn more about the podcast. Healthcare Americana is produced by Taylor Scott and iPodcast Pro and managed by Melissa Turpin. Healthcare Americana is brought to you by Freedom HealthWorks and Freedom Doc. 
If you've been struggling to get the care you need and the access you want, it's time to join your local Freedom Doc. Visit freedomdoc.care to find the practice location nearest you. Whether you're a patient, employer, or physician, the Free Market Medical Association can facilitate and assist you in your free market healthcare journey. The foundation of our association is built upon three pillars, price, value, and equality, with complete transparency in everything we do. Our goal is simple, match willing buyers with willing sellers of valuable healthcare services. Join us and help accelerate the growth of the free market healthcare revolution. For more information on the Free Market Medical Association, visit fmma.org. Hi again, everyone. This is Chris. At Healthcare Americana, we're always on the lookout for great stories to tell in the healthcare industry. And we'd like to hear yours. Check out healthcareamericana.com and send us your ideas for episodes or if you'd like to be a guest. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoy it.